Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I am chatting with Liz Luizzi. Liz is an educator, daycare owner, and has her master's of education in learning, cognition, and development. After becoming a mother, she has been on a mission to empower parents with research-driven insights to boost their children's cognitive and emotional growth. Through her Instagram page, Parenting Charlie, she offers a blend of scientifically backed parenting tips and real talk dedicated to nurturing the holistic development of tiny humans. In today's episode, we will talk about different parenting styles, focusing in on responsive parenting, what that looks like, and how to navigate certain situations. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right, everybody. Today we have Liz Louisi here on the podcast. Welcome, Liz. Well, um, thanks for having me. What am I going to say? I was going to say welcome. I'm sorry, moms would understand. Welcome. Uh, my coffee is still not. Well, we were we were just discussing this. We're both sounding like we've had like 15 colds in a row, which we probably have, and <laughs> we're just diving into our coffees this morning. Yeah, please excuse all the words that I forget. I'm still somewhat postpartum, if you count the. 18 years afterwards. So, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you can be in your postpartum period as long as you want. That's my theory. Yeah. There we go. I'm going to take it. And actually, you know what? You just remind me, I would love to have someone on the podcast to talk about this, but you don't kind of like normalize until like two years after or something. And (laughs) that doesn't, I mean, if you're breastfeeding or, I mean, that also plays into it. Right. So it's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I tell my husband that all the time. I'm definitely not myself. I'm still breastfeeding. I, I'm still waking up like five times at night. My <sighs> body's not the same, but I'm I'm different. It's not all bad, you know? Yeah. It's good and bad as with everything. And it's short lived. I mean, it doesn't seem like that when you're in it. 
I mean, I didn't feel that way when I was in it. But now that I'm like on the other side of having all my kids older than three now and every, well, I say that and literally last night, my three-year-old was up every hour on the hour. She hasn't done that in years. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and I still don't even know why she was up. I, I think it was, so everybody's had the GI bug this week and I think she might've been nauseous. So I went in there, I gave her like a bowl by her bed and gave her medicine and all this stuff and kept going into rubber back. And I don't even know that that was definitely it because she was, oh yeah, my tummy hurts, but you know, I don't know, but it gets better. It does. And you don't feel yeah. like a zombie yeah. anymore, which helps a lot. I think we also kind of get used to it, but you know, it's it's almost worse. I feel like when when they're bigger, when they start sleeping better, and then they have those nights because then right, you're not you used can't do to it. it anymore. I know. Yeah. So my friend Kayla and I were talking about that recently. Like once you start getting the sleep again, and you're getting a solid seven to eight hours, you have a night like that, and you are wrecked. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy. But then we do it for years, right? I don't yeah. I don't understand. It's such a weird phenomenon. It's really strange. My experience has been that everything with motherhood is very strange. None of the things that I thought were going to happen actually happened. Sure, on the developmental side with the kids, they did. But as a mom, like my experience, I had no idea. So yeah, and that says something. Like it took me four years to make this baby. And so I do feel like I have a little bit of that perspective that it goes by so fast. And it's definitely not granted, you know, like it took us a lot of work to have this child Mm -hmm. ruining my nights. (laughs) <laughs> and so I appreciate it, even though, you know, I am exhausted, but it's definitely something right. strange. It's definitely yeah. wild. I know. It really is. All right. So Liz, let's start off with, maybe just talk to us about, you know, your journey in parenting and how you got into exploring these different like parenting styles. Yes. So I grew up in Brazil, if you can hear an accent and or if I forget any words, that's where it's coming from. I grew up in Brazil. And so I'm from a very, very small town on the south of Brazil, you know, not the big Sao Paulo. And I come from a church going family. We have all those cultural elements of very traditional authoritarian parenting. So, you know, in my house, you had to be on your best behavior. When you didn't, there was punishment involved. Mm. So Discipline was the same as punishment as I was growing up. And obedience was something like it was not negotiable. I was not, and my brother and like my family in general, kids weren't given an explanation as to why things were. They just were because I said so. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, my background from growing up. And I remember as a kid and I got in trouble, you know, because I'm a very curious person and I like to understand the why. And you can see as in an environment, the kids are not old explanations that wanting to know the whys doesn't fly very well. So I got in trouble Mm. all the time Mm. for talking back. And I had this one particular, like I tell my mom to this day and she's like, I'm so sorry. And it's great now because she can acknowledge that it's not, it wasn't the best approach, but she would talk to me and like, she was, I don't remember what she was telling me to do because of course I should have been like five or six and she was telling me to do something. And I was questioning her and she goes don't talk back to me and you know I had gotten my fair share of mouth slaps from talking back so I was like okay sure I'm not going to talk back I was thinking to myself and she kept talking and then she asked me a question and I was dead quiet she was looking at me I was looking at her and she goes are you going to answer me I said you told me not to talk back oh my gosh it's kind of funny like isn't it like now we laugh about it and she's like 
I am so sorry. And I was like, I literally had no idea what talking back meant. I didn't. And so I started nannying. That was my very first job. And I had this click. So I obviously can't spank someone else's kid. I can't yell at them if I want to keep my job. So what do I do instead? How do I find ways that I can manage our day to day and I can still support them? But there's obviously have to be boundaries because again, from my background, we don't let kids walk all over us in that sense. So I needed to find other tools. And so I began as with my personality, I'm again, I'm a very curious person. So I began exploring different disciplines, styles and methods. And then as I got older and started my academic life, obviously I went to school for education. And so there was some of that built in there. You know, a lot of teaching styles are similar to parenting styles in the sense that you have you know, the authoritarian style or the permissive style, and then you have somewhere in between there. And so everything began to make a little bit more sense. And my time in the classroom really did a lot for me in terms of seeing those tools working in practice, because it's one thing, you know, when we hear somebody saying, you got to shift to the positive, you got to tell them what to do. But how do we do that once you have all of these things going at once, especially in the classroom where I had like 25, five-year-olds at once. So that really helped me understand the things that I could do to make things flow. And when I went for my master's, there was a really big focus. I, I had a master's in learning, cognition, and development. So it was a really big focus on the cognitive neuroscience side of things. So how the brain develops at each stage and how you can best support the kids on each stage. And so that's what really tied everything together for me mm. because it really like we some sometimes we have some expectations for our children that do not align with what their brains are capable of. Mm-hmm. And so like we're asking a five-year-old to not talk back, but a five-year-old cannot understand what that means. Unless, of course, like that's a built up thing that has been explained before. But yeah, so it kind of went from a very authoritarian side and you know, obedience-based to a much more balanced approach, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say to the other end of the spectrum, but it's it's definitely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking too, like one of the responses of, you know, kids questioning something, the response can be like, oh, well, because I said so. And I understand that response only because, you know, sometimes if a kid's asking a thousand questions, you're like, oh, I don't know, just because I said so, you know. Mm-hmm. But you think about when, and you know, we've all made these mistakes. Like I've said these things to my kids too, because I said so, like, you know, I don't know, you've got a million things going on. You have, especially when you have a lot of kids, it's just, it's difficult. Parenting is hard all around. But then you think about when your kid is older, our job as parents is just to build them up so that they're able to thrive in the outside world without us. Right. And we would never want our child not to ask questions and just be obedient. So if somebody is going up to them, a stranger and saying, do this, and then them not to question it and just be obedient. We would never want that. We would want our child to think and say, oh, wait, I don't know. I have questions about this. I don't know if I want to do what you're asking me to do. And we want them to be curious. And that's how they learn. And that's how they're able to thrive in the world without us. And parenting is so crazy because you learn something new every single day. And especially when it comes to just like a parenting style in general, you know, I didn't even learn about parenting styles until I was like well into my motherhood. So you're like way ahead of me and probably because this is what you went to school for, right? But I'm four kids in and I'm still working on this. Like it is hard. And kids asking why is so, so important. And I know it can be annoying, especially if you have like four kids asking you why. 
<laughs> but it's it's important to try to just stay calm and answer as many questions as you can. Because sometimes you do have that kid that they'll ask the 10 more questions afterwards. Yeah, I have one of yeah. those. Like, <laughs> as you were talking, I was thinking, we are going to learn, I think, new things every day. I was just mentioning to before we started, but like, even though I knew the theory and the practice in classroom, my experience as a mom has been very different from what I thought it would be. So I guess mm-hmm. like, you know, at the end of the day, nobody has all the answers. All that we can do really is try mm-hmm. to respond in a stage that they're they're going to be able to understand. And even saying like, because I said so, to me, that alone, not an issue. And mm-hmm. absolutely a bunch of times, both in the classroom and even with my one-year-old, sometimes he wants to dig into the dog bowl. And like, I can't explain to him why he can't. It's just because I said no. <laughs> okay, just yeah. like, let's move yeah. on from this. Right. So there is a certain, there's certain things that you don't necessarily have to explain, but we always as you said so nicely, it is our goal that our kids will be questioning things and Mm -hmm. trying to think if the direction that they're given makes sense. And so it's so important to really listen to their questions and see, you know, you don't have to answer all the questions, but maybe there's one important question among all the 25 that they're asking in that minute. So if you answer one, that's better, you know, Um, just like slow progress. It's It's all we can do. Yes, exactly. So true. You mentioned very briefly like authoritative parenting and permissive parent. Can you go over the different parenting styles just for those that might not be aware of them and like the definition of each of them? Yes. And I, I love this question. And I think as we are getting more information as parents and I'm seeing a lot of information online, I think we kind of got ourselves into a little of a binder when it comes to parenting labels and discipline. I see a lot of the gentle parenting label and I'm I'm going to talk about why I dislike that and it doesn't fit me or the discipline that I am I'm behind. So authoritarian parenting is the, because I said so, parenting mm-hmm. pretty much to sum it up. So the parents are the authority or the adults are the authority because that works in other contexts as well. And the children are supposed to obey and comply. And a lot of times that is punishment based. So if you don't follow along, there is a punishment. and There are so many in-between approaches. And again, there are so many new labels that came up. I'm going to mention the other side of the spectrum with the yes parenting and the permissive parenting, Mm -hmm. which would be the parents who are letting the kids take the lead. So they're not um, necessarily making the the calls, making the choices, enforcing the boundaries. They're kind of letting it flow. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two ends of the spectrum. And then there's in-between there, there's so many labels. And so the gentle parenting, sometimes people see that as a yes parenting approach, right? So Mm -hmm. you're being gentle, you're not saying no. And some of the concepts, the original concepts of gentle parenting are developmentally appropriate, like focusing on the yes thing, like instead of don't run, you're going to say, let's walk inside. So you're giving the kids what to do instead of what not to do. And that's great. But when we say gentle parenting, it kind of it gives out that idea that we're not holding any authority and you're still supposed to have authority, right? Because when you think about responsive parenting and what that means to me and responsive discipline. So what that means to me is that you are parenting the child in front of you. You are responding to who's in front of you. And so if that's a one-year-old like I have, I have to be mindful of what he's capable of understanding. 
So I'm obviously not going to let him choose what he's having for lunch. He has no capacity to make a decision that is good for him at this stage. So responsive parenting is not letting my child take the lead. It's not giving him choices that he's not capable of making. It is finding that way to parent him and give him safe alternatives for things and some agency over his life where is appropriate. So we might look very different depending on your child's age. And so it can get confusing when you're talking about, so how do we do this? Mm -hmm. Because the general answer is, it depends. It depends on your own child. You have four. You probably know that if you do the exact same thing for all your four, it's not going to work for all of them. No, 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 (laughs) no. So when I talk about responsive parenting and responsive discipline, that really means take a look at the little one that's in front of you. Mm-hmm. And then let's go from there. So where are they developmentally? How's their personality? How's their temperament? And that also means kind of like tuning out some of the noise when it comes to all of you should do this and you should do that and you shouldn't let them make choices and you should let them do this and you shouldn't say no. Take a look at your child. And that's what being responsive truly means that you're mm-hmm. you're answering to them and you're working together with them because ultimately as you said, what is our goal here? Our goal is for them to be able to navigate the world using what they have. And so that also comes with what they already have in terms of personality. And you're trying to help their brain development in a way that serves them. Can you share some of your examples of how you've applied the responsive discipline in your journey with your son? Like just some specific examples? Sure. Yeah. And again, like he just turned one. So we aren't like yet in the trenches of the tantrums and like we're getting there. But I guess you could also use some of the just some of your examples too with, you know, kids that are not your own. I mean, you have so much experience with kids. I don't know exactly what ages they range from, but you can even use those too. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually thought all over, but I'll start with Charlie because I, I think it's a good visual that responsive discipline or responsive, whatever you want to call it, really comes from day one because our goal is just to hold boundaries. So boundaries have to be built. And so I'll just give you a silly example with Charlie first. We have a golden retriever. His name is Theo. And so one of the earliest boundaries that we had to have with Charlie was making sure that he was approaching Theo appropriately because obviously he's a very big dog and we are concerned for both of their safeties. And so from super early, like when he was two or three months, whenever he would go near Theo, we would say petting, petting, and like open his hand to make sure that he was touching Theo with open hand. But now as babies do, once he started crawling, he was starting getting a little bit grabby. So he would crawl towards Theo and try to grab his hair. So every time that we would see that, we would go to him and like petting, petting. Sometimes he would open his hand because he knew, you know, we, we had already done the building block. And sometimes he wouldn't, and he would still want to pull and like try to use Theo for standing. And so what we did with that is we removed him. So we're holding the boundary. You're not going to grab your, our dog. I always say our brother, (laughs) just don't want to confuse anyone, but um, we say, we're not going to, we're not going to grab the fur. Mm -hmm. So we removed him. And like, so in essence, we're saying the appropriate behavior is petting. So you can do that. If you can't do the appropriate behavior right now, we're going to take you away. And he doesn't like that. Um, a lot of times when we remove him from Theo, he would throw himself on the floor and do the whole meltdown mm. and all of the things. And this is one thing that I think it's also really worth noting is that they are allowed to be upset, you know, when we hold mm. the boundary because mm. that's appropriate. 
in their brain. And it's like, even when you think about us as adults, like sometimes I got really upset the other day because I went to get my nails done. And as I was driving back, I messed it up in the car. And so I didn't throw myself on the floor and cried, but I was still really upset. And so that's okay. You know, we were saying like, he's frustrated because something that he wanted to do, we weren't going to let that happen. And that's something that is okay. I'm not telling him stop crying. I'm not telling him, you know, this is not a big deal. It's not important. It is important to him, but that doesn't mean that my boundary changes. Mm -hmm. My boundary stays the same. You don't get to pull your brother's hair, but we are, we are respecting the feeling, but we are sticking with the boundary. Mm -hmm. And so that framework goes for all the ages. And again, Charlie is really young. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of what's going to happen. And I see a lot of his personality being a little bit like mine, which means he is going to question everything that I do. And he is going to be a little bit defiant. And, you know, developmentally, that's a great thing. As his mom, I'm not so sure. But <laughs> but in the classroom, too, you know, I had like one of my favorite students, my absolute favorite. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but I'm, I'm retired <laughs> now. So I can say that uh, teachers do have favorites. Yes. Um, so like he was a brilliant kid, but because he was so smart, you know, and he wanted to understand things and that also happened that he wanted to question everything. And sometimes when he didn't agree, he would throw things in the classroom or he would walk away from the classroom and slam the door. And all of those are not appropriate behaviors to have in the classroom, right? Especially Mm -hmm. when you have 24 other kids that Mm -hmm. you need to keep safe. And so there are some steps that we take when it comes to responsive discipline and responding to behaviors that we don't want to see. And so I think it's important to kind of break it down because it's a threefold answer. Like, what do we do before? What do we do during? And what do we do after? Because the before is really like the foundation, right? So as I said with Charlie, when we're saying Every time that he's nice and happy and he's playing with Theo, we're saying petting, petting, so that he knows what is appropriate. Mm-hmm. So same context in my classroom. Every opportunity that we had, we review the expectations because the biggest thing for you to respond appropriately is your kids, the kids that you're taking care of, your own kids, knowing that the expectations are clear and consistent. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest step from the before. And as the more structured that the environment is, the easier it gets for most kids because they thrive on predictability. Now, mm-hmm. is it possible that your kid doesn't? Yes, absolutely. Like some kids really enjoy the flexibility. And that's why I always say it's really important to teach the child that's in front of you. But generally having a structured environment and having, you know, really consistent things that happen, it's really helpful for them to know where they stand. And then the before, right, when they're calm and day-to-day, through play, through books, through movies, teaching those little coping skills. So in my classroom, when I knew I had this friend who would get frustrated and then that would escalate really quickly, some of the things that we did in the morning was doing some relaxation techniques, some breath work that was appropriate to their age, like smell the flower, blow the candle. And that, I was giving them the tools beforehand because when that started to happen, I could say, hmm, how about we smell the flower? You know, so there's that before. Now let's say it happened anyway. So he was frustrated and then he started to flip chairs in the classroom. Now I can't let that happen, right? So 
what's my job there as the adult that has the regulated brain, that has the developed brain? My job is to keep everybody safe and hold the boundary. So we don't we don't flip chairs and we don't throw things. So in practice, that would look like me putting myself, you know, between him and whatever he was trying to get and calmly saying, we're not going to do this. And I can say something else that we can do. So the chairs aren't for flipping, but we can sit on them and talk. Or the chairs aren't for flipping, but I can give you some Play-Doh for you to calm down. Sometimes that helps. And sometimes that doesn't because it, it depends on how deregulated they are. If the flip has switched, as we call it, you know, their rational brain, if they're so upset that their rational brain has turned off completely, mm-hmm. you giving him a redirection, most of the time it's not going to work. And so what our job is, is to just stay calm, keep them safe and sit there and say, you know, like flipping chairs is not okay. I'm going to sit with you mm-hmm. until we can go back to a safe behavior. And again, they're going to be upset and they might cry and they might try to run away, but we're holding that boundary and we're holding space for them. Mm-hmm. And for kids up to at least seven-year-olds, they take a lot from the adult to help them co-regulate. So heart rate, breathing patterns, all of that they're taking from us. And so that is really important that we acknowledge that so that we can sit with them and be like, I understand that you can't calm yourself down, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm here to help you calm yourself down. And then once that's passed, once that everybody is calm, you know, the middle of the tantrum and the behavior is not the time for the lesson. A calm brain is a, it's a learning brain. A dysregulated brain is not. So you can't really teach them while they're trying to throw a chair, you know? So once everything is calm, we're, we're going to revisit. So you were upset before. Do you remember what you were upset about? Oh, I was upset because I couldn't do this work. Oh, I understand that. It's really hard, but we don't flip chairs because that's not safe. What can we do instead? And so, again, this takes a lot of consistency and it takes right. some work of being mindful and making a plan beforehand. And so I think this is where as parents and as caregivers in general, we struggle a little bit because we kind of have to have a plan before we have to respond. Mm-hmm. Because on the go, if we're relying on just our response, a lot of the times our kids are triggering to us. And so it makes it hard because like we can't we can't co-regulate if neither of us are regulated, you know? And that's why I think for me it's so important to share about the stages of brain development and talk to parents about the stages of their child development so that once you understand that, you can look at your child with a little bit more empathy. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to make you mad. They're not trying to necessarily push your boundary on purpose for the sake of making you mad. Mm-hmm. They're doing that because that's the normal development of their brain. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at them from a lens of they don't have the tools yet to act normally, as we would say, right? They don't have it. And so I do, hopefully. And so I'm going to, I'm going to help them through it. But that, that does take a little bit of forward, uh, like thinking beforehand. And I think mm-hmm. just understanding that they're not there yet, like their brain doesn't work like ours. That goes a really long way when it comes to the way we respond to them. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm picturing the scenario of being in a classroom and I'm not a teacher. You are, but, or you were, and being in that classroom and being able to do this with that student, you know, and I just, it's, do you feel like it is different being able to, I mean, you're not really parenting while you're in school, but you are practicing these 
parenting skills, right? Where you're mm-hmm. kind of trying to switch the gears for this one child who's who's having a hard time. Do you find it different to apply those same things to your own child? Because you did mention like our kids can be triggering to us. So I think about that and in my head all the time I go through these like, okay, this is exactly how I'm going to respond when X, Y, or Z happens. And one of the big things in our home anyway, and I'm sure in those that are listening that have multiple children within their home, and you can kind of talk about this according to what you saw in school. I'm sure you this happened a lot where everybody's fighting. You know, there's like mm-hmm. child number two and three are going at it. And our two middles, they, they play beautifully together. Like they have this, oh my gosh, they have this beautiful imaginary play every day. They take out all these different toys, you know, making little cities and they do the most wonderful imaginary play. But there's like a switch that goes off at like the second hour. I don't know what it is, but there's fists going, rolling and brawling on the ground. I'm like, what happened? And Mm -hmm. in those situations, it can be so hard to kind of control the situation when you have other kids and then you have a baby crying. And then, so I'd love to hear kind of your approach to something like that, where, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of experience in the classroom where you're kind of dealing with that one kid who's having a hard time while also trying to maintain the others and keep that calm environment. How would you go about that? Yeah. And honestly, this was my biggest challenge all throughout, especially in the classroom, because we're, we're talking about 20 20, 25 kids at a time. And so when you have to stop everything to handle like that one behavior, it kind of everything goes to, right? You, you, yeah. There's no way. There's no way right. you can do that. And so acknowledging that first and foremost, like it's not easy. I'm not saying it like it's something that we can all do and be, you know, right into the rainbow happily. But it's really like prior work. So when I knew that this was a behavior and I think this is how I train my teachers to just try to notice when that's happening and why. So for one of my particular students, I knew that was during math time because the math book work wasn't really challenging enough. And so he would get bored. And when kids get bored, sometimes things escalate. So before, during a morning meeting, during whatever else, we would talk about what do we do when somebody is acting in a way that disrupts our class. And so I worked a lot with the other kids so that they could keep working, keep minding their business. And obviously, again, sometimes that didn't work. Kids are not robots, but doing that prior work of mm-hmm. here's what's going to happen and here's what you're going to do and here's what I'm going to do. So doing that prep a little bit beforehand, that really went a long way for me in a classroom. Mm-hmm. But I will say, as you mentioned, like for the particular situation and siblings and fighting, you know, I have a a brother that's six years older than me. And then coincidentally, he has two sons that are six years apart as well. Mm -hmm. And my goddaughter and my godson are also six years apart. So that age range, I don't know if it is the age range, but we find that it causes, there's a lot of play involved, but there's also a lot of fighting because they don't necessarily see the same things and are interested in the same Mm -hmm. things. And so this is something that I, as a kid, like my brother and I fought a lot. And, you know, I have experience of how it was handled on the authoritarian side of it. My mom would yell and we would go on time out. Sometimes my brother would get a little spanking because he was the older. I also see how it plays off differently with now with my brother's family or um, with my godkids' families. But I think the most important thing, and when we go back to what are the basics of responding to behavior when it comes to being responsive is we're going to remove the unsafe behavior, right? So if they start fighting, 
they need to be separated. And I know at the time is really hard, especially now my nephew, my oldest is 11. And so when my brother goes to tend to them, how are you going to physically separate an 11 year old? And so that becomes a little tricky as they grow, but sometimes it means like you position yourself right in the middle, but it's really hard to keep ourselves together because why are you guys fighting for the 50th time about the same thing that we fought all these days? And so I think our work is, you know, obviously trying to regulate ourselves, but also I get a little triggered by all the scripts and here's how you say, fighting is not allowed. I'm going to move you to the bedroom now and then move the kid to the bedroom and then everything everything is fine and everybody's happy. That's not me. My personality will never go from there. And I'm going to tell you 100%, there's like a 85% chance that I would yell. And is that great? No, but it is authentic to where I am. And I think this is where, as parents, we... We have to give our kids some grace. Their brains are not ready. But we also have to give ourselves some grace because being a parent is really overwhelming, especially when you have three or four kids and all of like you're, you're cooking dinner and you're trying to keep the baby out of the dishwasher and you're too old or decided to, to fight. And so if you lose it, that's okay. It's still being responsive. If you later come back and say, well, I really lost it. I was really overwhelmed. There was like a lot of things happening at once and I'm going to work on that. I'm working on it. But sometimes when there are too many things at once, I get overwhelmed and I get upset. That is being responsive too, because that's teaching your kids that it is okay. And you're going to work on it. You're not pretending like you don't have any faults. And that's another thing that comes. I think I saw that a lot growing up the adults trying to pretend that they were perfect and everything was fine all the time. And what that does in turn is that that raises kids who are not really in touch with how they're really feeling. And they're not sure if they can behave the way that they want to behave or they are safe to behave the way that they actually feel on the inside because they they don't see it modeled. And so it would be ideal to not yell. It would be ideal to not be like, can you guys just all go to your room? That would that would be great if you can keep it together and you can say it in a nice way and just like, we're not hitting. You go sit here. You go sit there. We're going to go back to this later. That's great. If you can do that, if you're having a great day and you can do that, awesome. But if you can't, and that's still good. And that's still parenting. And that's still being responsive. You're responding to the behavior. You're keeping them safe. And then you were saying to them, you're modeling the coping skills, right? I didn't have it. At the time, I yelled, you didn't have it either. You hit your brother and we're all going to work on it. And so I think just keeping it real with the kids goes a long way. I definitely lost it in the classroom. Not proud of it, but I did. You know, sometimes there's like 25 kids yelling and it's a lot. And I would tell them, like, I just I just need a minute. I can't not talk to you guys right now. And it's funny because up to a point later in the year, Everybody would know that sometimes they would walk into my classroom and all of my kids were sitting down and I was sitting down at my table, not looking at anybody, just looking down. And they were like, everybody needs a minute. Mm -hmm. Because that was something that we were used to doing. And obviously it took a long time, but just that modeling of sometimes I get upset and sometimes I do things that are not appropriate too. I think that's really powerful for our kids. And we don't talk about that. We talk about the perfect parenting a lot. We don't talk about how 
Imperfect is also really good for your kids. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I was striving for better gut health and hoping that along with my current exercise routine, it would give me a great energy boost. AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. AG1 has the NSF certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and certification of each ingredient and every finished batch of AG1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. Perhaps my favorite part about AG1 is how they evolve with science. They cross-reference decades of established research with new clinical studies and biotechnology to bring you the best formulation possible. They have made 52 iterations of AG1 to this day and will always strive to be better. I drink AG1 in the morning after my workout with added protein. It's a great way to start the day and gives my body what it needs for fuel. Personally, I love AG1 for the gut optimization. As a busy mama of four, I don't always have time to concentrate on getting everything I need nutritionally, and this helps me stay more balanced. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I've been a partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to ag1.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Drink ag1.com slash Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y. Absolutely. I mean, I practice that probably more often than not these days because things are stressful. And at the end of the day, it's like the other day, my kids were getting ready for school. And there was a lot going on. I mean, just anything and everything you could think of was going on. And I'm like trying to get them all in the car and yelling things out like, shoes on, do this. And I I honestly, it probably sounded like a drill sergeant, like straight out of the army, just listing off all these things that everybody needed to do. And we're like rushing in the car. And then we got in the car and I sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, that was so unnecessary. (laughs) You know, because you, in your head, you're like, I really got to get all these kids. And then you're like, well, why? What? Because they might be late to school. It's okay one day out of like, I don't know, you know, their whole school year. It's okay to like be late. Like you don't have to be this crazy person. And so I'm always constantly trying to keep myself in check. And I turned around and I was like, wow, you guys, that was a lot. Did you guys think that was a lot? I feel like that was a lot. And I raised my voice. I'm really sorry I did that. And I do think that so much, like you said, comes from that because they realize, oh, it's okay to make a mistake. And then I can own that mistake and then I can try to do better the next time because how else do we learn if we're not making mistakes, right? Like you can't learn anything if you're just a perfect person all the time. And actually my husband and I last night were talking about what it is to win and how it is to lose. And we were like, it's so much better to lose, whether it's losing a basketball game or losing, you know, whatever it might be. I was like, you learn so much more from that event than you ever do 
from winning anything because you win and you're like, oh, okay, I, I must be the best at this. If your child loses, if they try out for the soccer team or they try out for the basketball team and they don't make it, mm-hmm. there is such an immense disappointment. But then there's this immense room for growth. Okay, well, what could I do next time to be better? Or you know what? Maybe I'm going to try something different. I think I want to try a different activity or sport or what have you. And having that growth mindset from this, what looks like failure, but really isn't, we can kind of like build upon that. And even as adults, I think about that every day. I'm like, oh man, I I used to say to myself, I feel like such a failure today as a parent because I did X, Y, and Z and I didn't get X, Y, and Z done. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's such a disadvantage to your own self and to your own kids to kind of have that mindset. It's like, okay, well, that's okay. That happened, but let's move on from that. We need to have that growth mindset of like up and up, (laughs) you know? And being a parent really teaches you that pretty fast because if you were just thinking that way all the time, I mean, it would be doom and gloom all the time. Yeah. yeah. Like this thing that I said with parenting the child that's in front of you, it also goes for yourself. We got to deal with the situation that's in front of us and not what we expected it to be in our heads or what we thought we should be doing in this situation if it arises. You know, like the way I respond to things when I slept for seven hours and had my coffee, it's very different than the way I I respond to things when I was up five times and didn't drink any coffee yet. So it's not the same every day. So, you know, just going from there and I think that's so, so, such a powerful message. Again, like with that growth mindset, kids show better academic performance, better emotional regulation. And that comes from understanding that the best part is the trying, is giving your best and figuring out if you can do it and if you can get better. It's not about the achievement. And so with parenting, I think sometimes, and I personally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist in recovery, <laughs> I like to say. I used to be, and that definitely changed when Charlie arrived. It was like so so eye-opening for me. But I used to be a person who who went for a result. I wanted to do this and I wanted to do that. And I I opened a business while teaching full-time and I went to grad school at the same time and I got pregnant at a remodeled house. Like I was doing all of these things and I was tired and burnt out. And in myself, I didn't have any grace for me because I was like, I, I I'm doing everything halfway. But that's because I took on so much. And you know, I wanted to do everything perfectly and I'm stretching myself so thin. And all of a sudden this little child is born and I look at him and I'm thinking, I don't want him to do this the way that I'm doing it. I don't want him to try to be perfect. I don't want him to think that the goal is to achieve this and that and go here and there. And like, I want him to figure out how to be a kind responsible person. And I want to help him have the tools for that. And just saying that gives me the chills because it's like so off my personality, honestly. It's not on brand for me at all. But it just like, it clicked for me that if I keep running it this way, if I keep holding myself to impossible expectations, right? And I keep holding, I'm going to end up holding him to impossible expectations also. And then that voice you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough. That's going to grow with him. And what does that do in the future? Nothing that I want for him resonates with that. Absolutely nothing. And so what comes from this thought, right? And I think this is something that oh, I always use to, to kind of ground me as I think about him 
being a grown up and talking to his friends about his childhood. And I like, how was your mom? And I answered this question a lot of times. And, you know, I always tell people like my mom's the hardest working person I know, but she was really stressed because our circumstances also didn't allow for her to not be. But she was super strict and we got in trouble when we didn't listen. And like, she didn't really take any time explaining things. And so again, like now as an adult, as a mom, I understand her circumstances. It doesn't really mean that I, the way that we were raised didn't get ingrained into my brain. Right. So I saw her going, 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 and I didn't have any context for that. And so I think about him, him being grown up and talking to his friends about me and what is my goal for him? Like, I want him to see me as a person. I want him to know that I've made a lot of mistakes, but I was always trying, that I really listened to him and I was kind of reasonable most of the time. And we had some fun together, but I'm also like teaching him things. And so when I think about that and I think about who I want him to be as he hopefully one day is old enough and welcomes his own kid, I want him to think Mom is a resource. Mom knows how to listen and how to help and how to understand that we're not perfect, as opposed to my whole personality from before being his mom, which is mom wants to be perfect. And and so I think just like grounding ourselves in that. Who do we want our kids to be? And who how do we want them to remember us? Even, you know, like spending time with us. Like, do we want to be somebody who is added stress to them once they're grown or do we want to be somebody who they like having around because they know that we are imperfect humans who are trying our best and I think at the end of the day in my classroom this is what I thought my kids but that's not something that I taught myself I didn't think it was valid for myself and I think this is the biggest shift and I know you asked um, you asked before the difference between you know disciplining and teaching kids that are not my own and kids that are my own is that that is exactly it. The kids that are not my own, they see a snippet of me. They see what I show them during those eight hours that I'm with them. And like eight hours is still a long time. They get lots of glimpses of everything about my personality. But living with me, living in my house and seeing all of my interactions, that's a whole other ballgame. And I think the biggest difference mm-hmm. for For me, it was that. It was like I had such an awareness that he is going to know who I am. Am I proud of that? Mm -hmm. Is this something that I want to teach him for him to be or for him to see as an example? I don't want him to be like mom's a crazy perfectionist and she drives herself crazy, which would be true. It would be true. But like I don't want him to see it as the the way that we do things. And so that takes work on myself. And and that's why I think after that, right? After he was born, when I was in classroom, I relied a lot on the prevention strategies and the responsive strategies that I mentioned before, right? How how do I avoid behavior so I have to see it coming? How do I plan for it? How do I respond to it? And when he was born, I kind of like a piss was missing for me, which was it's also okay if I don't, you know, it's okay if I don't see it coming. And if I respond to it incorrectly, because that's also teaching him that I'm a person and humans make mistakes. And so I think I get every time I get emotional when I talk about this is so silly. (laughs) 
Is that silly? Oh my gosh. It's it's hard, you know, to get out of our own ways. But I think I know. Like just just letting them know that we, we do things wrong all the time too is so powerful. And I hope that he knows, you know, it's trying. I'm trying. He can try too. And he he's gonna make mistakes and he's probably gonna hit his sibling if he has one. I did. I don't I, I'm yet to meet a child who doesn't hit mm-hmm. their siblings. Okay. It's just like it is what it is, but um, I'm hoping that I will respond to it in a way that has empathy for both where he's at developmentally. And if I don't, I'm still going to respond to him as in, I don't know how to deal with this yet. And we're going to learn together. And I hope that you stop hitting your siblings. And I hope that I stop yelling at you for it. But this is, you know, this is a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I went from completely losing it to now my approach is, you know, it's gradually getting better, but it's, it's, you know what? It was so hard for me and it's very hard as a mom because what you see, what the initial picture you see is you see two people you love so much and one of them physically harming the other one, right? Mm -hmm. And something in your heart like completely breaks because you're like, oh my gosh, you are physically harming somebody I love so much and you're somebody I love so much. And like, what do I do? And my immediate reaction was always just like yelling, you know, and, and you go to timeout, you know, and just breaking it up. And it's hard not to do that because you see these two things you love so much and one of them being hurt by the other. Right. And like you said, it's so important to realize what came first. Right. Mm -hmm. And really important, which Again, this is a newer concept for me as I've kind of had to deal with this with my two middles is the acknowledgement of the party that was being harmful to the other person is to say, okay, I understand that you are upset right now and acknowledging their feeling, right? And that to me was something new. I was just like, no, this is wrong. Like you can't do this. And now I've switched to acknowledging that feeling. I understand you're upset and you're allowed to be upset, but mm-hmm. you can't hit your sibling. You can do X, Y, and Z instead. Like you can come over here and you can, or you can go outside, you can take a stick and you can hit it against a tree or you can just give them other ways to kind of express their anger, but you're not allowed to physically harm someone, right? And so that has taken so much practice and we're still not where we need to be. It takes significant repetition for kids to kind of understand where to go with their feelings. Managing your feelings even as an adult is hard, right? Someone makes you upset and you're yelling at them. You get into a a fickle with your partner and you're yelling at them. It's hard. It's hard for adults to do it. And so, you know, if, if their sibling or if their friend decides to, I don't know, like rip up their art project that they were working on for so long, that is so triggering for them. And their immediate reaction might be to hit that person. Mm -hmm. Is it the right reaction? It's not. But like, we have to be there to be the ones that are saying, okay, you're allowed to have the feelings of feeling anger and being hurt by this and and all these things, but the reaction needs to be different. But that takes so, I mean, yeah, it took me forever to get there, you know, having that set up. And there's some parents that might already have that kind of instilled in them because maybe they grew up with, like I grew up as an only child. So all this stuff is kind of like brand new to me where I'm trying to understand sibling dynamics and manage that. Like I have no idea (laughs) like what I'm doing half the time. 
None of us do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. No, none of us do. Even when they're all out of the house, we're still going to have, we're, we're just trying our best. I remember talking to somebody who, older than me, probably in their 50s or 60s, and they were like, listen, Lindsay, you are going to do everything. We know you love your kids. Parents love their kids, and you are trying your best. And inevitably, one of your kids or all of them are going to have some issue with your parenting when they get older, mm-hmm. right? They're just going to be like, oh, my mom always did this and blah, blah, blah. You, all you can do is try your best. That That's all you can do because you could not possibly satisfy all your kids and be the best parent out there. It's just not going to happen. So you just have to try your best and kind of accept that and let it be. And, yeah. you know, as your kids get older, like I remember in my 20s, I had this vision of my mom and it's totally different now that I'm 38 with four kids, right? Yes. I have so much more respect and, and you know, all the all the things that she did for me. And, and I had no idea of that when I was in my 20s. So it's just as you get older, you have these different views. And I'm sure like you with your mom, you understand she was trying her best. Like that's what she thought she had to do. Yeah. But it's making you the parent now that you are going to be, which, you know, is such a beautiful thing. And yeah, it's just, yeah. it's a wild yeah. ride. I think it's annoying to younger people and people without kids that we say, like, you don't truly understand your parents until you're a parent. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's true. It, it's so true because yeah. once you have that little person that relies on you 100% for their survival, really, it's not even just like what we're teaching them. But the first few years, they can't eat without you. They can't change themselves. Like they rely on you for mm-hmm. everything. That really gives you a different perspective of the amount of work that it took raising us, you know? And my mom did it as a single mom. So I'm like, whatever else you did, that's fine. Because you know what I mean? She was really, I have so much respect for the amount of work that it takes. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking about this idea that we're never going to be a perfect parent and we're never just trying to be a perfect parent is impossible. Um, And that's why I think I talk so much about being responsive instead, because responsive means you're, you're working with what you have, where you're at, where your child is at, and the situation that you have, and doing your best to respond to them, where they're, where they're coming from, and where you're coming from, working together, depending on your particular situation, because we can't like compare and we can't say, well, this child's so well behaved, but are they? Are they be- exhibiting behaviors that are considered good because they understand that or because they are being compliant? And so mm-hmm. we really can't look at anybody else's, you know, grass in that sense. And I think where this is something that I struggle a little bit when I'm sharing, you know, like on my page and I'm trying to share information. I see a lot of shoulds going around in the parenting space. Mm-hmm. So here's how you raise your kids. Here's how you get your baby to sleep. Here's how you do this. Is it? You don't know my kid. So right. what I try to do the best that I can, because, and I do it because I think it really made a difference for me on the guilt, I think, you know, like parents, I hear a lot about the mom guilt and like the guilt that you feel all the time um, from the time. And I feel like as delusional as that sounds, that I feel very little guilt when it comes to parenting. I feel guilt about everything else, um, especially when it comes to myself. 
But when it comes to my parenting, I don't feel as much. But that's because I understand the development of my child. And I understand that I'm not actually going to mess him up all that much, you know, unless it's something pretty significant or, you know, I'm confident in my choices because I understand development and I take that piece, right? The child development piece. And I add that with my child, my particular child in my particular house, and I make the best possible decision for us. And so with that, I feel okay. And sometimes I'm like, well, I should have done it differently, but I didn't know. So like there's the guilt is very small for me in that sense. And I feel like I wish, I wish that I could pass this along to other parents. So they don't feel unnecessary guilt. Like we're all going to feel guilt at some point, but we feel guilty sometimes for things that we shouldn't feel guilty for. And so you can do what you can do. And so just like sharing that, like here is how, you know, brains work most of the time for kids. You take that information and you put it on your kid and see how that works for them. I can't tell you what to do because I don't know your kid. If I did, then I could probably help, but I don't. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, there's some strategies that I love sharing that worked for most families, especially kids that have the more spicy personalities, as I like to call it. Um, And so there are tools, right? And I always like Mm -hmm. to say this, I like sharing tools, but I can't share solutions because I don't think any of us have any. Right. I mean, and what works for one, like you said, doesn't work for all of them. I can assure you (laughs) because we have different, and that's part of the other thing that's very difficult is once you start having more than one, you have all these different personalities and you know, from having a classroom of 20 to 25, everybody has a different personality and has a different way of learning and has a different way of responding to things. And, and you have to, you know, my kids will say, well, why does he get to do that? And I don't. And I'm like, Well, because you're not the same person, right? Are you the same person or are you different people? Do you have different likes and dislikes and personalities? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, each of you have different rules, you know, and that's mommy's job, right? Is to make sure that you all have what you need and not all of you are going to need the same things. And I think that's very hard for them to understand, especially when they're younger. But if I made the same rules for everybody, that would make everybody very upset and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, I wouldn't want the same rules as somebody that, you know, is next to me that is doing something completely different and has a totally different personality for me. That doesn't make sense. But yeah, it makes it makes things so hard. And especially like as a teacher, like you're having to manage all of these different little humans in there trying to make them thrive while also you sometimes you have to make certain rules for certain kids. Yeah. And yeah. You know, like that little boy that you were talking about. And, and so and, I think this is know. this would be a good idea for me, a good point for me to just share the way that I did it in the classroom that might be helpful for parents with multiple kids, because I, you know, unfairness, there's, there's actually research on this. Unfairness is one of the things that hurts morale is that being that, you know, in a work environment or in a school or at home, like there's really this big component to if things are perceived as unfair. And so what you're saying to your kids, it's so key because Fair does not mean equal when it comes to development because you're each your own person. But what I like to do is make kind of umbrella rules. And so these are our, in my classroom, we had five, five rules. And so that's all. But 
all the different boundaries and all the different applications would fit into one of those categories. So, you know, like when somebody would ask, well, but why does this kid get to sit with you? And one of our rules was we try our best. And I would say, because he tries his best when he's sitting with me. And so having that you fall back into a bigger boundary that applies to all of your household or all of your classroom. That really helps with them understanding, especially when they're younger. So I think that might be um, just a good tool for you know parents with multiple kids or caregivers who are handling a classroom. When it comes to like we had helping hands. And so that would mean if something like to one kid who I found didn't really like being in the community so much. I would always task him with picking up things that fall on the floor so that we can create that sense of like this classroom also belongs to you. But why do I have to do this? Because that means we're having helping hands. To my other kid, it might mean you keep your hands to yourself at all times because you're having a hard time not using your hands for hitting. And in this classroom, we use helping hands. And so just having those, you know, categories that you can fit your particular rules into I always found that really helpful when it comes to making sure that the kids feel there's a certain fairness to the different applications of your rules that are necessary so that you can truly be responsive. And I think one of the things that you shared, it was actually written down on my notes as one tip. And I think you you mentioned, like you asked, are you the same person? And so I think humor is such a great tool mm-hmm. for when you're teaching little kids. And sometimes, again, like especially where... I'm coming from and like in my culture, parents and kids didn't really have that, you know, report of making a joke when there was a behavior involved or the sense of humor was something that was more reserved to adults with adults. But I found that so helpful as a strategy because once things started getting tricky, like I had a student who would roar every time that he got upset. So he would start like, And so instead of going like, no, Roy, we're using our inside voice. I say, everybody quiet. Let's hear it. I think I have a dinosaur in my class. Oh, no, I didn't sign up for get to be a dinosaur teacher. I'm going to leave. What am I going to do? And then everybody started laughing and that, that kid usually joined in. Sometimes he would roar a little more, but that was then a joke and not a behavior anymore. And we mm-hmm. could all kind of rein it back in. And so humor is such a powerful tool, you know, for adults and kids alike. And definitely lean into it because you know it just it helps everyone involved sometimes we do need a laugh to just like yeah get things going absolutely absolutely okay so let's wrap up we were like we could probably chit chat all day i didn't realize what time it was i was like oh my gosh is there anything that you want to touch on before we kind of close up here that we didn't get to i think i mentioned like i was going to say as a tip you know like for responsiveness to simplify the boundaries because sometimes we create too many rules and then it's it's hard to keep up and consistent is really what makes the difference. But the last thing I'll say, I think everybody has heard the sentence connection before correction. And it's really, you know, applied usually in the sense of when something is happening, you connect first and you acknowledge the feeling and you go from there. But I also think this is a good tip for parents who are seeing behaviors arise to find that outside of the behavior happening, like five minutes, just like play with your kid, go for a walk, leave it like a one, just whatever time you can, even if it's two minutes, right? Because if you have multiple kids, like if you have five minutes for each, that's not enough time. 
in the day, but just a little moment of connection. Mm-hmm. We can be proactive in that way in avoiding any behaviors that might be attention seeking and not on purpose. Just wanted to make sure like when we talk about attention seeking behavior, the kids don't do it on purpose, but they, mm-hmm. they have that connection need. And sometimes they'll find it in misbehavior and the way that they're having those big feelings, you stop everything to respond, right? So they're getting that five minute of connection, even though it's not a positive connection. Right. So just feeling their cup as much as we can. And I think that goes Mm -hmm. such a long way. I can share some other resources and books if you want to put in the show notes that um, if parents want to go through it, that, you know, that really helped me and some of my favorites. And yeah, if you have any questions or anything that you think, because I know I talk too fast and I bounce between subjects. <laughs> so um, anything that you would like for me to answer like more specifically, more clearly, uh, we can we can absolutely do that too before we wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I do love that you just mentioned that because so, and I'll just briefly kind of finish it with this. We have one of these children that people will label them as um, just like high energy or spirited. (laughs) Yeah. And oftentimes she would, you know, act out with these bad behaviors. And this is what I mean when I say every child is different. What we ended up finding out is, so she is incredibly independent, very, very independent and very, I mean, I, the right word is not defiant, but you know what I mean? Like she's just constantly asking the questions, right? She's my why, my why child. and you know, she would act out. And it took me a long time or me and my husband a long time to realize that actually that was the connection that she was getting. And so Mm -hmm. it's like this cyclical event that would get worse and worse because that was the way she was connecting with us. Mm -hmm. And again, it's hard. And you'll realize this for those listening, like if you have multiple kids, it's hard to to make that connection with one child when there's multiple, it's, it is a difficult task, but you know, you'll kind of figure out your kids as, as, as they grow up. And with her, what we've realized is, okay, she definitely needs that more individualized attention. So like at bedtime, we always make sure five minutes, like each of us go in there separate and we'll just spend five minutes just talking to her about her day or whatever she wants to talk about or do. And it has helped immensely. Now, my oldest, she doesn't need that particularly. She must get it some other way. Like she, we definitely give her attention, but she's has different needs, right? Than mm-hmm. my other oldest child. And you just come to realize, you know, like they're each different and they all need different things. But yeah, I, I definitely can attest to the fact that when they're not getting that one-on-one attention or that connection they are craving that connection and they will act out to get the negative attention because negative attention is better to them than no attention. Absolutely. And even though you think you're giving them attention, they might think, okay, well, I don't feel that I'm getting that one-on-one attention. Even if you're talking to me with all my siblings, that to me, that to her is not one-on-one attention. That's you spending time with everybody. But what she wants and craves is that one-to-one connection, which is hard, but you have to make it work. And you know, you can, I promise you can. It's, it's just a matter of figuring out and laying out your day. And even two minutes, three minutes here, it makes yeah. a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. And so now when we see her act up like that and she kind of like lashes out and she's trying to crave that negative attention, we're like, okay, we got to rein it back in and we have to, you know, 
make sure we're getting that time in and it makes a huge difference. So yeah, absolutely. And I think you you gave a perfect example of what responsiveness means. Not all of your children are going to need the same thing. And some of your children might be great with the social attention and spending time as a family and some of them might not. And you need those two minutes, but just the little things. And so yeah. that makes me so happy to hear that even, you know, you're finding that a way to respond and fill her cup. And you're finding that difference in the behavior because a lot of times we focus on what the behavior is that we don't want, mm-hmm. but there are, there are things that we can do yeah. kind of help them through it. And again, I just wanted to make sure to say this one more time. The behavior is not on purpose. They're not, not doing this. They're not doing anything no. to us. You know, it's just a way to express a need yeah. of a brain that's not yet developed to say it. Mm-hmm. And like with that, we go into, it could go into so many things, like the way that they perceive to be loved, right? I relate to what you're saying. Like I need a one-on-one attention. Like to me, yeah. it's never enough to be in a group. Right. But to my husband, for example, it's fine. Like if we're having time as a family, to him, it's fine. And so right. even as we grow, we're all different people. And so just meeting mm-hmm. the, the kids where they're at. And I think that goes such a long way. Yeah. And we, so a quick little addition to that is we were using these, you know, like those conversation cards, like the conversation starters, yes. we have them that we keep them on our um, kitchen table. And so our daughter took them out last night. And one of the questions was, would you rather have 10 siblings or be an only child? And I was like, so some of the questions I'm just so excited. And you learn so much about your kids, right? Mm-hmm. You learn a lot about your kids when you do these things. And so we're going around the table. And the first one to answer the question is our child who, like I said, she she we give her more of the one-on-one. And she goes, Oh, I'd rather be an only child. And all the other kids were like devastated by this answer. You know, they're like, oh, and you know, we went around the table and all the rest of them were like, oh, I'd rather have 10 siblings. I'd rather have 10 siblings. And I said, well, see, we're all very different people. Some of us thrive a lot when we're one-on-one with somebody and we feel more connected. And sometimes we feel like we're lost if we're in a group of people. And for her, that's how she feels. And it's funny because they took offense to it. And, you know, as a parent, you're like, <gasps> you're like, oh my gosh, you're hurting your siblings' feelings. But that what I love most is that she's always honest, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, No, I'd rather be an only child. I'd rather she goes, and then I would just have mommy and daddy and I would have the attention all the time. And I'm like, see, this is so funny because that's truly how she is, right? Yeah. Like she does want that one-on-one all the time. And, you know, I think she feels a little bit lost when she has to share it all the time. And so Anyway, it's just, it's so interesting. And as they get older and they talk to you more and you get to really interact with them, it gets really fun because you get to know their personality so much more. And it it makes parenting actually at least a little bit easier in the fact that you know what they need more than you do when they're younger because you can't quite figure it out, you know, what what they really want when they're not able to tell you, you know? absolutely. And I also yeah. love that you you mentioned this again, and this is something that I had on my notes as well about the the two or five minutes of like pockets of connecting. That's not mm-hmm. only for connecting. It also gives you great insight into what your kids like, what they're into, what they don't like, so that you can also mm-hmm. have that knowledge as a tool for when you need to teach them something or, you know, yeah. so just like it goes, it's such a win-win and it doesn't need to be a long, a long time. It really doesn't. So yeah, I love everything that you just said. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it. Okay. So let's end with the two questions I have for you. So the first one is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I think- I know. I'm sorry. It's this like, is like such one, a broad- Really big one, okay? We <laughs> 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 just really, really take care of the kid that's in front of you. Don't, don't look at other people's kids and like other parentings and find the information that you can about how kids learn and how they grow and how the information is helpful. But then use that with the child that's in front of you. I think we would save so much time and worry and just guilt if we were just focused on our own children instead of like trying to constantly question ourselves if we're doing it right based on the way that other people are doing it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. All right. Last question. If you could make one meal for your family that everybody would eat, that's relatively quick and easy. What would it be? Oh my gosh. So I'm going to shout out somebody now. Um, I hope that's okay. No, I go follow Kara Cham- Chambers. She has the what to cook when you don't feel like cooking subscription. And oh. I shout that from the rooftops because it truly like it changed my life postpartum. I love cooking. I cook all the time. But after Charlie was born, obviously, like I don't have time to do this. And all of her meals, like most of her meals, you can do in 30 minutes or less. And they're usually like one pot or one sheet pan. So it's amazing. And for sure, the answer would be her beef and broccoli recipe. Um, My husband's obsessed. He asks for it all the time. We do it at least once a week. And Charlie eats anything that we make. So he's happy to munch on whatever. He's a big, big eater. What was the what was the person's name? Caro Chambers. Oh, I think I have heard of her. I'm like just putting. I'm gonna link it in the oh show notes. Too. I, like I love it so much. She sends a new recipe every Sunday. But then, oh yeah, she has a Substack, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's like I don't know. Yeah. It's maybe thirty dollars a year, which is yeah, like really. Affordable. I have heard of it. Well, that's like paying for. I mean, if you buy a cookbook, right? You know, right. like, like, like I mean, new recipes all the time. They're so easy, and she comes like she puts substitutions for each ingredient, which is amazing because like sometimes you don't have something or you forgot something. Right. Or your kids don't yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. Um, I really, really love it. And she has a whole section on what to cook when you have to feed kids. And so that like takes away all the spices and the fancy things. It's really, oh, that's I love great. it so much. And I share it all the time wow. because it truly made my life so much easier. <laughs> Awesome. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for taking the time out of your day to talk with us about this. I truly appreciated having you here today. Thank you. It was awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.